it's also pretty clear, too, that, that we're in a world that isn't about careers any longer. We're in a world of projects. In fact, you could be hired for a role today, whether it's through the mediums we've been discussing, as opposed to the human touch. And in six months, the person that hired you may or may not even be with the company. That's how quickly things are changing. We're seeing a high turnover of CEOs. And as soon as the CEO changes, it's sort of ring around the rosy and uh, people below them begin to change. The expectations begin to change. Hi there, this is David Knorr. Welcome to the third season of the Curvebenders podcast. I'm so excited after years of research and interviews and due diligence on this topic to finally be able to publish Curvebenders this year. It'll be my 11th book as a follow-on to Relationship Economics and Co-Create. Curvebenders, in essence, are your strategic relationships that enable your non-linear growth in the future. Our research points to 15 forces that we believe will dramatically impact the future of how you'll work, how you'll live, how you'll play, and how you'll give. The global pandemic is just one example. So how will you remain relevant if more disruption will come at us more often with potentially far greater impact? In each episode, I want to share with you insights, great ideas from guests I've invited to join us, as well as practical ideas in the evolution of your skills, your knowledge, your behaviors, and most importantly, what I believe is your biggest asset, which is your portfolio of relationships. I call those relationships your curve benders. So let's get started. Hi, everybody. Noor here. I want to let you know that we've launched a brand new website, including a brand new blog, a resource section with links to all the previous podcast episodes, Inc. and Forbes articles, and a new intimate community called the Noor Forum. It's a place where like-minded professionals are gathering to learn, share, and grow through insights about strategic relationships, visual storytelling, and nonlinear growth. This is also where you'll find the show notes, articles, references to position papers by my podcast guests. For example, I hosted David Burkus on a live stream, and we've put a link to that video there. So join us at norgroup.com slash forum. That's N-O-U-R group, norgroup.com slash forum. Welcome back to another episode of the Curvebenders podcast. My guest today is, boy, a longtime friend, colleague, someone that I certainly admire for not just what he's done, but kind of who he is. And, and I've always said to him, as well as to others, our guest today lives a lot of the strategic relationship insights that I share with my global clients on a daily basis. Joel Koblenz, welcome to our podcast. Thank you, David. Thanks for inviting me. It is great to have you. For our audience, Joel Koblenz is nationally recognized for really solving some of his clients' most sensitive, critical, and confidential leadership and governance challenges. Fantastic background. Uh, most recently, senior partner at Egon Zender. As you may know, Global Executive Search and uh, Director's Consultancy. Uh, during his tenure, he was the managing partner of the New York and the Atlanta practices and uh, led its service sector practice group for the Americas. Today, we're going to talk about 
really this idea of, of strategic relationships at the executive, at the board level. But let's talk about some key trends you've observed in the last 10, 12 months of this pandemic. What's happening in the executive search? What's happening in that C-suite and the board level discussions? What are the key trends? Well, the first trend I'd say is that we are watching companies as we have over many, many years go through transformation. Maybe we didn't call it that and maybe there were consultant terms for it, but companies are going through transformation. What's happened with the pandemic was the speed and the torque at which they're going through this accelerated. And as a result of that, it's changed the alignment to value and how value is created. We're dealing with in a period of foggy, what we call foggy windows. Imagine you can't see forward. So when we would uh, talk with CEOs, let's say last, actually a year ago in February, before the pandemic really took hold, we asked CEOs how far into the future that they feel comfortable in predicting what might happen to their business and what actions they were taking based on those predictive analytics. And they told us that they could look out maybe six months. Today, uh, in conversations with the same group of people and even more, there is no looking forward. The looking forward is based on fundamentals. It's based on now on understanding that transformation is picking up velocity and torque and that sitting still and waiting for the foggy window to clear is far riskier than taking the steps and moving forward and adjusting as we go. And what it does is it changes the alignment, though, between the strategy of a company, how it's structured, how people are organized in those businesses, how they collaborate within that culture, and how they drive value. That's beginning to change. And the pushback in many of these organizations, however, comes from the swim lanes. I'm not going to leave my swim lane. It comes from the pushback of not invented here. It comes from we've never done it that way, so why should we do it that way? So leadership at the very top is trying to bend these curves, and the pushback tends to come from middle management that doesn't want to move and has the anxiety of not moving as fast. So what's the answer? The senior leadership team and the board has to realize that status quo will no longer suffice, right? They're going to have to transform, but in some ways they need that middle management. They need the the rank and file to kind of move along with them. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And the most successful understand that they cannot leap further than the than the middle management will permit them to leap. So a big part of this is building trust, confidence through communication and therefore relationships around those things that are most important in terms of priorities of driving this value. So oftentimes decisions were not made with any consultation with the middle management. And the middle management, in many cases, is much closer to the revenue stream than top management. In fact, most cases. So as a result, now the inclusiveness of thinking through this, how the strategy could be delivered, if in fact you want to bring middle management along, that inclusion is now critical. There's no question about it. And it has to be respectful. It can't just be window dressing, if you will. So the better companies are understanding that and baking it into how they reach decisions, how they collaborate, how they actually work with one another, and how they trust one another. 
we have most everybody's gone virtual, most everybody's working from anywhere. How do you believe that impacts that need to communicate, collaborate, build trust? Something obviously you and I talk a lot about, build and nurture real relationships. <laughs> no doubt it's challenging. There's no question about that. The tools have gotten better, but the tools do not change the need for the human interaction. Okay. They just don't change. So as a result, I think it's fair to say that that it now makes it even more imperative to build those relationships because those relationships are necessary to create value. It's just it's absolutely imperative. There's no alternative to it. It's not going to come from Microsoft Teams or Google or Zoom. Uh, and relationships really are two-way streets. And two-way streets re- require trust and respect. And they require that effectively one can count on person or people or groups that you're talking with and that they will reciprocate accordingly. It is more difficult to expand out of your relationships or expand your relationships with these other mediums other than the human touch. So it is challenging. How has the executive search, whether it's the C-suite or the board level, been altered during this pandemic because of the pandemic? I'm assuming executives are not flying to visit with those companies. I, I know several clients who've added leaders all virtually. Talk a little about that executive search function and, and both identifying, but also onboarding and really making new C-level executives successful amidst this pandemic. Well, it's a touchy subject, no doubt. Very touchy because there's no substitute for the sitting across the table from someone and truly understanding who they are, what they're passionate about, what they can deliver, and the three or four themes in their career that will hopefully help a company deliver on its themes, its priorities. It's also pretty clear, too, that that we're in a world that isn't about careers any longer. We're in a world of projects. In fact, you could be hired for a role today, whether it's through the mediums we've been discussing, as opposed to the human touch. And in six months, the person that hired you may or may not even be with the company. That's how quickly things are changing. We're seeing a high turnover of CEOs. And as soon as the CEO changes, it's sort of ring around the rosy and uh, people below them begin to change. The expectations begin to change. So in our work, we have spent a lot more time on referencing potential candidates before talking with them and a lot more time and a higher acuity even on the back end of referencing. Because you're right, people aren't flying. People aren't going to meetings. So we've got to do much more diligence. We always did quite a bit in our firm. It's why we have 98% completions against an industry average of 60-some percent. But we are spending an awful lot of time just making sure, making sure that the I's are dotted twice and the T's are crossed twice. You were kind enough to invite me to present some of our work to a roundtable of of chief, you know, CHROs, chief HR officers, chief people officers. How is their role evolving in the midst of this pandemic? How is that role of a chief people, chief talent, chief human resource officer evolving? Well, they've certainly become much more in the spotlight. You know, historically, human resource officers, with all due respect to them, weren't as respected inside of their companies as they are now. With the distance workforce, with how you develop talent, with the whole succession management that boards are getting directly involved in, with the whole movement towards the ESG, the Environment, Social, and Governance Matters 
that companies are dealing with, with the idea that boardroom doors and executive suite is opening up to all, with the rub between stakeholders on one hand and shareholders on the other, not having necessarily come together on what that actually means. This is a very interesting time. And the whole concept of the human capital has come more and more, become more and more important and more and more in focus. And so the demand for truly top human resource officers has never been higher. Now, the challenge is to find those top human resource officers because the way people have been trained has also been siloed. They come up through comp and benefits. They come up through organizational development. Maybe they come up through some sort of talent management or they come through HR information technology. And trying to find people who have the breadth of experience to really help these leaders inside their company have their most important asset, the human capital, and have it available when they need it, how they need it, and at a cost they can afford, is really, really become a top-level board-type issues. And CEOs are getting much closer to their CHROs, as are the operating people, because they recognize that they can't in this world that's changing so rapidly do it alone. They can't do it alone like they used to, where the human resource people were basically relied on more heavily for administrivia than strategy. Now they're being relied on equally, if not more, for strategy and deliverable of that resource and support of that resource and development of that resource, meaning humans and leadership, than they are actually shuffling the papers. You have served on a number of critical roles in, in terms of board effectiveness, board impact. You know, you were involved with the compensation committee at Focus Brands. You were also served on the board of QTEL, CIA's Venture Capital Fund. Joe, what's happening to the evolution of the board of uh, roles of a board member? I think the days of, you know, qu- you know, quarterly maybe or annual board meetings and reading a binder and collecting a nice check. I think those days are might be numbered, if not gone. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, talk about evolution of board roles. Well, since Enron, which was now almost 20 years ago, if you could believe it, the boards have begun either because government has required it and, and or shareholders have, have required it, has become a, a very heavy duty. With In boardrooms today, it's, and let me kind of put this into some perspective, David. There are half as many public companies today as there were 20 years ago. There are board sizes that have shrunk in the normal size today, and the norm size is usually seven. There's some that have nine, there's some that have 13, but you don't see the large GE type of boards that had many more than that. And if you look back last year, the turnover of board seats, remember there's half as many and fewer seats, even of the fewer seats, only 7% churned for public companies, round numbers. We don't have the official numbers, but it's around 7%. The year before, it was was, was 6.5%. So we are seeing these boards spending an enormous amount of time at trying to get their handle around, more currently, all of these ESG, the environment, social, and government type of issues, which are as much societal as they are economic. So that's one thing that's happened. The second thing, because of that and because of the requirements of committee works, All boards have three basic committees to start with. Some have many more, but you have your audit committee, you have your comp committee, and you also have your executive or governance committee. That committee work is taking up more and more time of board members. We tell a candidate, if you're interested in being on a public company board, 
plan on 200 to 250 hours a year. And that's if everything, everything goes right. You don't have an SEC investigation. You don't have a potential takeover. You don't have an activist shareholder. You don't have a problem with the government in one way or another. So all of those factors take that number up. So it is a much larger commitment today to really do your committee work, do your studying for the board, do your go to your board meetings, actually govern, not just go for half a day and play golf. Those days, as you said, are long gone. For most companies, it's very serious work, and governing these companies has become extremely complex. Let's switch gears for a second to you and I both know very competent executives, Joel, who may be in the wrong role, maybe in the wrong company, yeah. <laughs> sometimes maybe in the wrong industry. How do you, what are your recommendations? How do you suggest them to discreetly begin to explore other options? And it may not be another operating role and may not be a, another competitive company, but how do you coach, suggest, counsel them to begin to explore some options? And then I want to come back to the board, but let's talk about executives making changes. Okay. The one thing that you learn very quickly is that most people do not know themselves. They're lost. If you take a 90-degree plane and you said, I'm 180-degree I'm plane, and you're 90 degrees, you're tap center. As they, get, as they go through their lives, whether it's professional, personal, community, religious, whatever it may be, maybe they can look out 15 degrees left and right of that 90-degree set point. As a result, they don't really look out at the other 75%. And on either side of that 15%, right and left of 90, 90 degree set point. And, and the result of that is that they are unhappy. Here's the statistic that's just striking. 70%, and this is by all the literature, 70% of people making more than $100,000 a year are unhappy, uncomfortable, discontent, frustrated, angry. David, pick an adjective. Why are they? Because they evolved from where they were and when they started their careers to where they are now, maybe they didn't study their own evolution, their own priorities of what's really important. So what we've said to people like that, and there are plenty of them, seven out of 10, is to say, draw a line down the center of a page. Put everything you like doing on your left and what your preferences aren't on your right. But don't make it, I like the Yankees, so I hate the Red Sox. It's not that. It's very free form. Do it for about 30 minutes. Don't show it to anybody. Not your family. It's for your eyes only. And then pick it up in about two weeks. Try not to think about it. You will, but try not to think about it. And when you pick it up the second time, you'll begin to refine. You'll move things. You'll refine words, whatever. What that shows you is when you look in the mirror, you don't exactly know yourself. Because now you're refining and you're really figuring out who you are at this point in time. And lastly, put it away again. Don't show it to anybody. Your eyes only. And in two or three weeks, pick it up once more and do a final refinement. And I, that will tell you a snapshot of who you are, what's important, and what will give you satisfaction going forward. And use that template as you consider new opportunities. We've watched people who were in the top 10 in their companies. This is a large CPG company I'm going to speak of specifically. And that person was in line for succession for the number two or number one role over the next five years. That person left, did this exercise, that person left, and is now happier than a clam teaching the third grade. So you tell me, I, I don't know the answers for any human being other than find your passion. 
Recently, I read a book. It was a series of interviews put together by David Rubenstein, who started the Carlyle Group, and he has a show on Bloomberg. I'd suggest if your listeners have a chance to watch his shows, he interviews leaders in various walks of life. And what comes through in every one of those people, it doesn't matter whether he's interviewing Condoleezza Rice or Tim Cook uh, from Apple. You know, what comes through is a passion, a passion for doing what they are doing. And that's why they remain in the 30%. The misery index of the other 70% are people who feel trapped. Then the next question I get real quickly on this is, gee, if I did that, gee, you know, what would happen to me economically? This is just a general observation for people who follow their passions, usually within two to three years, they're economically better off than they were before they started this exercise. So it's an exercise you can do every six months. You can look back at your your step three, six months ago, once you complete your new steps, one, two, three, and you're going to see how you've evolved. You're going to see maybe in subtle changes of what's really important to you, what your priorities are. And that will help you to get into the 30% if you're in the 70%, and it'll help you stay in the 30%. I got to tell you, several executives I'm coaching through this pandemic, uh, you know, and, and Joel, these are people that were on the road like me, you know, 150, 200 days a year. Pandemic grounded all of us, and this global grand experiment has actually been delightful. It's a chance to reconnect with this bride I married, you know, 25 years ago, and my kids, and you know what? I, I don't miss running around the globe to do all the things that, that I had to do. And are you finding the same, that the pandemic has recalibrated some of those things? That's what's really important to us, what brings us joy and, and what we really enjoyed doing and a lot of stuff we didn't previously? Yeah, it's like a rubber band theory. You know, on one hand, you've been stretched and you've been released and it gives you a chance to really understand yourself. If you're willing to invest the time to truly understand yourself, then this has been a terrific period to do that. And and by understand yourself, it's put you in touch with the family. Reset your priorities so that you're not running to the airport for your next meeting because that's a higher priority than than maybe something that's, that's more personal. And it's going to change the way people, I think, think about work going forward. What is it in France? I think the work week is either 28 hours or 32 hours. No, no one will consider the French especially efficient. Okay. But look at the quality of life that they believe they've achieved. The same in other countries. Americans are known as workaholics, that we work to live, not, not just the opposite. So this will, I think, recalibrate it. And I think what will happen is people like you and I will say, gee, do I really want to take that next engagement, that next gig? Is it really worth it? What am I trading off now by doing that? Am I trading off a week at the beach? Am I trading off going to my kids' events? Is it really worth it to me? So I think you will see us not get trapped so quickly back into what was. And all of us will try and find ways to seek more balance, seek more mental balance here as well. Love that lens from a candidate or an executive's perspective. What is the pandemic doing to companies in how they identify, attract their next generation of talent? It's been very difficult because most companies don't understand the requirements of what that generation or the two younger generations, let's call them, 21-year-olds to maybe the 35-year-olds are really seeking. Clearly, uh, David, when you and I were on our way in our careers, 
we learn from almost being bag carriers from others, being apprentices, learning, listening, and caring. And it's been very hard for companies that grew where most of their leaders grew up thinking that way. Whether it was right or wrong, and is right or wrong is another issue, but or really works or doesn't work is another issue. But the generation that we've noticed, and again, a lot of our work is not done at this generation, but in talking to my younger colleagues, it seems that experience is very, very important. And that's it may be the reason that that's reshaping us from thinking about careers as we've thought about careers to projects. And I think that's something we are learning from that younger crowd. However, they will also have to cross the Rubicon and make a commitment to be leaders. And that's something that they are want to do, but they want to look at leadership somewhat differently than maybe the generation I'm from has, has looked at leaders leadership. They're looking for a balance. They're looking at a different way of communicating. They view social media and emails and text messages where for me, it's much more human, and I suspect it is for you as well. It doesn't mean that we don't use those other mediums, but those mediums aren't the highest priority for us. Okay, so as we as we look at, at at individuals who are coming through this, one of the things that we've coached them about to be successful, you have to have the human interaction and the human relationships. It can't just be by text and email and videos. You bring up some great points. Uh, you also had some great insights on on boards and how board members are, are thinking. There's a lot of executives who believe they have a great deal to contribute to boards. Now, that public company board may not, probably isn't going to be my first foray into you know governance. Um, how would you similarly recommend coach senior executives who are interested in more board opportunities and, and serving on, on boards, kind of think about those roles today? Well, there's certainly much more activity in the non-public boards than there are in the public boards. Okay? So a lot of that comes because private equity firms are paying multiples of EBITDA that they didn't pay before, and they're going to hold them for a longer period of time. And the smartest guys in the room who put these deals together aren't necessarily operating people. So they are seeking individuals who have the kind of experience to help guide their investment in a way that suggests that over time, it will have the payoff that that the investors expect. It's also true with families as they've gone through generations. There are very large family businesses, and they're privately held, and sometimes family members are involved, and sometimes they're not. So they are using boards to do that. Now, the issue for many people is how do you get involved and be selected? And here's here's the truth of it. About 80% of board seats go to people who board members already know. So they don't come to me for but 20 for that whatever that 20% might represent. So the idea of talking to people on boards, understanding what governance means to a private company which isn't laid out as succinctly as it is given compliance and regulation for public companies, it means different things for different for different enterprises. So there are groups like the Private Director Network, uh, like OnBoard in Georgia, which, is, which supports women to be on boards, for-profit boards, which may be public companies, but may not be. It could be the National Association of Corporate Directors. It could be getting information from some of these universities that have 
family business centers. There's the Cox Center at Kennesaw State in, in outside of Atlanta. There's there's one I believe it's at Loyola of Chicago. Northwestern has one. So there there's a number of universities that have these centers that give seminars and so forth. And so you, one can, if one is interested, start to gather information, and you'll be rubbing shoulders with people who have similar interests. And that's how you get into this game, so to speak. That's how you get into this game. I must receive anywhere from 10, 20, sometimes 30 inquiries from individuals per day, per day, who say, you know, I'm interested in the board seat. If you have anything, kind of keep me in mind. Well, I'm only as good to them as I can provide them general advice if I had the time to do that, but only as really good to them if I have a client who has a specific need and we're working on that specific need. But remember, my kind of business, my kind of profession is only handling one-fifth of the opportunities out there. The other four-fifths are coming because people get to know an individual who they believe, once the situation arises, that they should be considered. So, So being known, being out there, being educated, and showing a desire, providing strategic advice. Here's the downside of it, though. In some of the private companies, including private equity, in spite of what a candidate may be told, oftentimes you're treated as a cheap suit consultant. So you have to be aware of what governance really means to that company, what your responsibilities are, what you will be asked to opine on, how you will prepare, how often you'll be called upon, and will you be able to really contribute along those lines? Or will you be sucked into something that is, isn't really governance, isn't really about the board, but is about something much broader and you end up being more of an advisor and a consultant, which you know can, can obviously be much more time-consuming and perhaps not even pay off. So you got to just be careful. And be careful about the quality of people that you that you, uh, you you surround yourself with, your wing people on the board, because those are people that will recommend you to the next board. Uh, great insights. You and I have had several conversations about relationships and strategic relationships. You know that Curve Benders is my uh, Star Wars trilogy after relationship economics and co-create with a glimpse into the future of work. Joel, how do you believe relationships, particularly, again, at that C-suite, at that board level, will evolve in the next decade? I think there's a bellwether to all this, David, honestly. And the, and it is about trust, how you build trust and meet your commitments. You know, in my field of executive search, you know, there's, or board search, there are numerous firms. There's the big firms, there's the plug-and-plays like Horn Ferry, Hydric and Struggles, and so forth. But at the end of the day, firms that, like ours, don't have the market intonation, the resources to truly market ourselves the same way the big firms do. So how do we build a sustainable client base? Well, it comes from actually doing the work, building the trust, giving and not necessarily asking to receive. But over time, that reciprocity, that trust, that collaboration, the quiet communications, I think is what it will take in order to win in a highly complex world. Yes, there'll be times when you can plug and play. There'll be times when a requirement for a role requires more internal play than external play. But even internally, building those relationships is critical. There is no one person in any organization, including the CEO, that has the keys to the castle. All of us do. 
So it, it requires, I think, going forward, we're going to see relationships be even more important, not less at all. The problems, the foggy windows we're in now, I can assure you we're going to continue to see foggy windows. We're going to continue to see swans and things that we will have to deal with that are altogether new to us. It will take trust. It will take collaboration. It will take communication. And it will require commitment. And those are all elements that are so much a part of relationship building. We don't have those elements. I can tell you for sure a culture will not be able to deliver. It'll be ineffective and it'll probably be totally inefficient. And as a result, it will have the economic risk that it could have avoided if it built a culture built on trust and respect. Sage advice as always. Joel, my final question is, are there one or two individuals in your past that have shaped not just what you've accomplished, but the leader, uh, the executive that you've become? Well, I think there's many. You know, of course, one can look at their family. And in my case, uh, it was my father who they were relatively new to the United States. They had to give up quite a bit to come here. Never complained, but always pointed out that you meet your commitments. When you shake somebody's hand and look them in the eye, it's a contract. So that certainly shaped me. And through every role that I've been in, I've had the I've had the great honor of, and it's been a great honor of of having mentors who took enough interest in me to say, "Wait a second, let's look at this again." I can certainly tell you that Dr. Egon Zender was one of them who took a great interest in me. And when I took some tough roles in the firm, having managed offices and practice areas. And when I came to Zender, by the way, there were only five people in America, three Europeans, uh, an older gentleman, and myself. Um, so I was the fifth. I can tell you that it wasn't easy. Those were the days when we get resumes addressed to eggnog blender. No one knew who, who we were or how we went about it, but it was Aegon who said, we take a longer-term view, do the right things, build your relationships, give and don't ask to get. And over time, uh, we built a pretty substantial practice. I've done the same with my own firm starting in uh, really 2003. And those lessons don't leave it. I, I now pass those lessons on to my colleagues. Not everyone's going to accept it as is, and all of them are going to carry it out in the way that they carry it out. But the important thing is to understand that we owe something to some people who have helped us build a platform on which all of us can dance. And to honor that platform means to give that platform to the next generation, let them adjust it for their needs, but it's our obligation to pass that forward. So it's as much about it's as much about honoring the past and having people suggest to you how you do that, as well as, as be role models so that you can pay forward. It's not for me to define the future for my colleagues. It is for me to, to, to set up the ethical standards and framework and how we actually work to help our clients succeed. Someone asked me, they said, well, what's that really mean? And I said, Bellwether and my firm is we do not introduce a candidate to a client unless we have judged that if it was our money and our, and our capital at stake, that we would absolutely have to see that candidate. So we set up a standard that I think can be passed on. And in order to get to that judgment, yes, you have to have relationships. You have to have people tell you the truth. They have to be able to tell you and help you judge whether, in fact, a candidate is appropriate for that particular situation. They may be an A player one place and a C player somewhere else. So it's part of the people who've shaped me have taught me the value of meeting commitments and the value of telling the truth. 
the value of, of not shades of gray, the values, the values of, of standing up, even when you're wrong and admitting it, and then promising to do better. None of us are perfect. But as we evolve here, I think as, in this complex world in which we live, where decisions have become extraordinarily challenging, one really relies on the basic values that you've been taught, the basic ethics in which you operate, the basic way you treat people with respect, and the loyalty you have to those tenants, to those tenants. And that's what I've learned from, from my mentors. For our audience, if you just joined us late, you've been listening to Joel Koblenz, a founding partner of the Koblenz Group. I've got to tell you, consistently and repeatedly uh, referenced as one of the 100 most influential leaders in Atlanta. Uh, just a, a great all-around uh, just person, mentor. Uh, you know, you can you can read about, you can talk about servant leaders, and then you can certainly meet and uh, be surrounded by them. And Joel is definitively one of those. So, Joel, thank you for the gift of your time. Thank you for your insights. And uh, look forward to hopefully post-pandemic seeing you again soon. Uh-huh. Be my pleasure, David. And I hope I contributed to the conversation. It was great to have you. Thank you, David. Bye now. By the way, three quick points, new season and a renewed commitment to our digital footprint, blog, newsletter, social media. We turn the show notes from these podcasts into more in-depth articles, so you can find those in our completely revamped new blog forthcoming at norgroup.com slash blog. Number two, we're completely revamping our newsletter to make them even more practical and relevant with both a free and a premium version. Check it out at norgroup.com slash newsletter. Lastly, we want to bring the content from these episodes to life. So whether it's a Twitter chat with a guest or live streaming through our Facebook and YouTube channels, or even more recently, a Clubhouse audio conversation, check out our various social media channels with the hashtag Curvebenders for the latest update. What a fabulous conversation with my longtime friend and fellow Atlantan, Joel Koblenz. Uh, he's got an incredible background, so I, I hope you got it from his uh, tone and just wisdom that oozes out in every point that he makes. And joking aside, as long as I've known Joel, I mean, he lives the relationship-centric ideas that I that I espouse and that I talk about and I coach executives to think about and He's been doing it for all of his career, and and I think it's it's fundamental to his brand, fundamental to who he is. Uh, this is the Nor Notes summary insights in three minutes or less that I'm hoping you can immediately put to good use. It really resonated with me his comment that you know an incredible number of executives are unhappy and they're unfulfilled, and so many don't know themselves uh, as well, don't know what really makes them happy. And what what moves them? So, uh, really making some time for introspection, and really being smart about whatever the next opportunity is that you look at, uh, I think is really really smart. Um, I really like the idea of uh, really talking about the search process and kind of what are you you know what are your likes? What are your um, you know the things that are not you're not that excited about? You're not that 
um, non-preferences, I think is called them. And putting that away, looking at it every you know two weeks and then two weeks later to really get a refinement on that snapshot of the next opportunity. Uh, I you know really appreciated his comments about you know chief human capital and talent and, and really helping shareholders and stakeholders get beyond that friction and that talent makes all the difference in the world. Uh, really liked his insights on board roles and really understanding that stewardship. If you're in a position to join a nonprofit, join a private company board, that goes a long way. Uh, and, and really understanding, um, how to be a steward. I, I'm on a couple of boards and the national association of corporate directors early on taught us nose in fingers off your there. Your job is not there to do your job is to govern your job is to be that sounding board. So uh, again, I would highly encourage you to go back and listen to this episode. Joel Koblenz is the epitome of relationship centric careers and uh, and he's built some that are decades long. And what an exemplary role model to kind of look up to for that for that approach. So uh, title of this session, Rethinking Your Career as a Project, really thinking about how to continue to learn, grow in that process. Don't forget, I turned the show notes from these episodes into more in-depth articles. So I hope you'll join us at the North Forum, which is just norgroup.com slash forum. I'm so grateful for all of our listeners on the Curve Vendors podcast. I'd love to hear from you with ideas, with suggestions, with guests you'd love to hear from at this intersection of future of work, strategic relationships, and nonlinear growth. You can simply email podcast at norgroup.com or follow us on various social media channels where I use the hashtag Curve Vendors to keep you posted on our latest progress.